God, thank you for the glory that awaits us. Thank you for this unspeakable, unbelievable promise that we are yours and we will be with you fully and completely for all eternity. And this side of that, O Lord, we confess together that we struggle with sin and You know the very depth of it. And Lord, many of us come caught and struggling in our sin this morning. Lord, would You set us free? Lord, many of us come distracted with the busyness of everyday life, distracted with what's going on today, and we we have no room in our minds or our hearts for giving You this day the Lord's day. Father, forgive us. And God, I pray that by Your mercy and and kindness, You would focus the eyes of our hearts on the Lord Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, we need and would You grant renewal and revival and refreshment for our souls. Again, in Your mercy, God, would You transform us into the likeness of Christ. Remind us yet again today who we are and whose we are in our union with Christ. And do all of this for the glory of Your great name, we pray. Amen. As you may have heard, I'm going to try to get this a little lower. As you may have heard, I am the RUF pastor, Reformed University Fellowship pastor at James Madison University, which RUF is the college ministry arm of our denomination, the college ministry arm of our church. And so think of it this way, our region of churches, uh, which is called our presbytery, has called me, just like you have called a pastor here to, to serve and minister to you all, our region of churches has called me to go and serve to be a pastor and a missionary to JMU. Uh, It's a campus of 20,000 students, probably 19,000 or so do not know the Lord and have no connection to a a local church body. So um, you you can tell just from the numbers, there is a, a huge mission field there. And so... I and others who, who serve alongside me get to be a part of that, that mission field. Thank you for your prayers and support. Many of you uh, do pray and support the work there at JMU. If I could give you one or two ways to pray specifically for the work, there are freshmen and transfers that will show up in just a month or two who I don't know who they are, I don't know what their names are, and, and God will bring them to us. And, and so pray that, that they would see and know Jesus in and through the work of RUF uh, at JMU. And that we would have the opportunity to, to speak the glorious grace of God of the Gospel to them. And, and then secondly, pray too for our uh, united heart, mission, vision with our leadership team and our, our kind of our core group of students. I once heard uh, not too long ago one of my fellow RUF pastors say, doing RUF is like planting a church every year. Um, And and it kind of is, because every year we send out a group of students and we get a new group of students in, so it's a constantly changing, it's it's always a new group, which has implications then on the group that will be there. So 
Um, if, if you're inclined to pray for us, those would be two ways to pray for us. Personally, I, I have a wife named Terry, and I have five kids. Two of them are out of college, two are in college, and, and one is in high school. So it's a, a busy time of transition for us. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with some of the, the truths of the Christian faith, or, or maybe you're just doubting, maybe you've grown up with those truths and you're just doubting, is this really true? I'm glad you're here. Like There is no better place to, to struggle with those things than with the people of God who are struggling along together to grow closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. So you are in the best place uh, and, and welcome. I'm glad that you are here. Have you ever had a time where you've just wanted to quit? Where the, the pressures and the responsibilities of this life got so overwhelming that it just seemed easier to, to give up than to keep going? Where maybe not getting out of bed or just running away from everything seemed preferable to your current circumstances. That, that, that's kind of life this side of heaven, isn't it? And the first recipients of the book of Revelation, the book we're going to read from, knew what that was about. They knew what those struggles were like. God gave the book of Revelation as a series of visions to the Apostle John as he was exiled there in late first century uh, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And it was written to that late first century church that was struggling mightily with suffering and persecution. If they themselves weren't suffering from that, that uh, persecution, they knew someone that was suffering from persecution. And they had to be asking themselves, is it worth it? God, where are you? God, when will you deliver us? They were struggling with conformity to the world. What does it look like? And we can relate to this, can't we? What does it look like to be in the world, but not of the world? They were struggling, and again, I think we can relate to this, to complacency in their faith. You walk with Jesus for long enough, it can start to seem old and stale. And we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. And they were struggling with doctrinal clarity. Here they are in late first century. We stand in the 21st century and we have centuries of creeds and confessions that we can benefit from. They didn't have that benefit. It was a hard time to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. And God gave this book, God gave the text that we're going to sit ourselves down in this morning to a people Struggling, just like we do. And he gave it to them, not just as a hang in there, better things are coming. Yes, the book of Revelation talks about a lot of things that are yet to come. But it's not just a hang in there, better things are coming. God gave this book to a struggling people so that they might see Jesus in their current circumstances. In the here and the now of day-to-day -day life. In fact, we see that stated purpose in the very first phrase of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. 
where the Bible reads this way, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show to His servants. And then the rest of Revelation follows. But listen again to that first phrase. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revealing of Jesus Christ. The showing of Jesus to His people. I've heard it said that the most important thing about you is what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. And I think that's true. And I think not far behind that in importance is what you believe about you. What you believe about you. And the Bible has a lot to say about both. In Revelation 19, God is reminding His struggling people both in the first century and in the 21st century who they are and whose they are. And in those truths, He is giving hope to His people. Hope because they are loved and hope because they are His. And it's my prayer that you leave filled with this hope this morning. So let's listen to these hope-giving, life-giving words. And if you would please stand if you're able, we'll read together God's Word. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6-10. through Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at His feet to worship Him. But He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the Word of God for His people. You may be seated. As you just heard, this text is about the coming marriage supper of the Lamb. That great wedding feast of Jesus with His people. And before we get into the details of that and the implications of that, I don't want you to miss one stunning, astonishing truth. That there is a bride. There is a bride. Jesus is calling to Himself a bride. You see, to have a marriage supper, you must have a bride. Take this in for just a second. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, maker of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord and Savior of all, who has no want and no need, this Jesus is gathering a bride to Himself. 
God often spoke of His relationship to His people. We just read a text from Hosea 2. Listen again to those words. And I will betroth you to Me forever. And I will betroth you to Me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to Me in faithfulness. And you will know the Lord. This image of God's people being the bride of Christ permeates Scripture. It's one of the dominant themes or dominant descriptions of of God's people and their relationship to God Himself. Psychologists and counselors tell us that there are three basic questions that we're all asking Am I loved? Am I accepted? And what is my purpose? Am I loved? Am I accepted? And what is my purpose? If you are united to Christ by faith and you are a part of His bride, am I loved? Am I accepted? What is my purpose? You can ask no more. You are fully loved. You are fully accepted. And you are given purpose in Christ as His beloved bride. And this is important because you and I live most of our lives either unaware or unwilling to believe that we are this loved. What a difference it would make to our insecurities. Anybody else have those? To our fears. How about those? You got those? What a difference it would make to our insecurities, our fears, our despair, our overwhelmness. Those times when we don't want to get out of bed. To know that we are fully accepted and fully loved. What a difference it would make to our day-to-day faith to actually believe what one of my fellow RUF pastors likes to say. Jesus looks on His bride with honeymoon affection. Do you dare to believe that? Jesus looks upon His bride with honeymoon affection affection. And if all of this is true, it also means that we are totally secure in Christ. And I'm not the one who draws the straight line between God's love for us and our security in Christ. The Apostle Paul does that for us in Romans chapter 8. You'll know these words. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? We're going to keep reading, but listen to Paul's logic. Look, if I gave you My Son, is there anything I'd withhold from you that you need in this life? That's basically what he's just said to us. If I would give you My Son, there is nothing that I will withhold that you need in this life. And then Paul continues, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Paul is coming up with all the worst things he can think of. And coming from Paul, this list means something. Because he's endured most of these. And Paul's conclusion to that question 
Should all those things separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to his conclusion. In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth. Again, Paul is going through this list of all the things, all the the most mighty and powerful things he can think of that can separate us from Christ. And again, his conclusion, not anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, our true security can be found only in Christ. Is He yours? Is that where your hope and your trust is? is in the love of God, the love of Christ for you. Jesus is gathering a bride for Himself. And He is making the bride ready. Look back again at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. There is a readying of the bride that takes place. And one day we will be perfectly made ready. Until that day, we are being made ready. We're in process. We might call this process sanctification or our being transformed into the image of Christ. And that's going on even as we speak. To understand this readying of the bride, it would really be helpful to understand the marriage custom of the day. The groom-to-be would go with his best man and he would talk with the father of the bride-to-be to to settle on a purchase price. And after the price was agreed upon and paid, the marriage would then be legal, but they would not yet live together. They were betrothed, or maybe think in, in our day, engaged. And it would take legal divorce at that point to annul it. And then there was a period of separation which could take up to 12 months And in this time, the groom would return home to his father's house to prepare a room for them. And the bride would be preparing herself for the wedding day. And finally, the wedding day would come. And the groom would gather his best man, his family, and his friends, and they would walk in procession to the bride's home. There would be the the wedding ceremony and then a one to two week celebration. Think about that. Some of us have been to some long receptions, haven't we? One to two week celebration. That is a party, isn't it? Now, I've got two daughters. I can't even imagine paying for a one to two week party twice. (laughs) You've been there or you're going there. Did you hear the description of all that takes place leading up to this? And does that not sound an awful like, a lot like what Jesus has done on our behalf? Jesus has come and He has paid the purchase price on the cross through His blood shed for His bride, the church. And He has returned to His Father's house 
John 14 tells us to prepare a place for us. And He will come back to take us to Himself and we will feast. And not just for a week or two. But we will feast in His presence. In perfect and joyful communion and fellowship for all eternity. But we are not there yet, are we? We're still in this preparation period. We're engaged. We're betrothed. And until He comes, we are making ourselves ready. This being made ready is that process or that command that Paul and Peter in their epistles often give us. Be watchful. Be sober in your living. But the million dollar question is how? How can we make ourselves ready? Let me suggest two ways. First way we can make ourselves ready as His bride is we need to be serious about and growing in our faithfulness to Him. We need to be serious about and growing in our faithfulness to Him. God has given us commands. He's given us instruction on how we're to live for Him. Do you know His commands? Do you know His instruction on how you're to live out your call as a follower of Christ? And part of being faithful to Him is going to mean we need to take more seriously our sin. You hear that? We need to take sin more seriously than we do. Let's call it what it is. Adultery. If we are the bride of Christ, our rebellion, our turning our back on Him is unfaithfulness. It is adultery. And when we sin, we're chasing after other lovers. Now, let's think about this scenario. Jason, I'm going to put you on the spot here. When did you propose to your bride? I know this is really not fair. Just give me a year's round, round number. I can't do the math. What is that? 21 years? 21 years ago. So Jason comes up with this brilliant plan, this beautiful plan to propose to his bride, Leslie. And he takes her to that beach spot that's their, that's their favorite spot. It wasn't the beach. Okay, just let me go with this for a little bit. All right. This favorite spot, it's not the point, all right, uh, on the beach. And there's, there's this brilliant, majestic sunset, better than he could have imagined. And the songs, are, or the birds are singing their heavenly songs. And as they approached the beach, the flowers were in full bloom. It could not have been a, a more picturesque and beautiful evening for this. Everything going according to plan. Jason gets down on one knee and he looks up at his bride-to-be and he says, Leslie, I love you. I can't imagine spending one more day without you. I don't want to spend one more day without you. She's looking dreamily into his eyes. She knows what's coming. Tears start to stream down her face. Jason pulls out that two-carat diamond ring that cost him everything that he had. 
And there he is on one knee, holding that, that ring up. Leslie, I want to be with you for as long as the two of, us, two of us both do live. Will you be my wife? And just before she can answer, he adds this. On the condition I can continue to have a relationship with my past lovers. <laughs> Wish you could have seen Jason's face right there. I was just going to ask the question, now how's that going to go for Jason? Jason, how would that go for you? Yeah, not so well. Nor for any of us, nor should it. We'd be picking our teeth up off the sand, wouldn't we? We know intuitively and instinctively that's not how it's supposed to be on the horizontal level. Why are we okay with that? Why do we make peace with that on the vertical level in our relationship with God? If we're His bride and He's our groom, why don't we take faithfulness more seriously? And part of taking it seriously means we're going to have to be intentional and proactive in how we live. John Owen, Puritan pastor, put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the kind of intentionality, that's the kind of faithfulness we as the bride of Christ need to live with. Second suggestion. So first, we need to be serious about and growing in our faithfulness to Him. Second, we need to be serious about and growing in our affection. In our affection for Christ. And I get this from Revelation chapter 2, a few chapters earlier. And it's the first of the seven letters that God sends to the seven churches spread throughout Asia Minor. Where God tells the, the believers there at Ephesus, you do this well, you do this well, you do this well, but, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. You do lots of things for me, you do lots of things in my name, but your love has grown cold. And again, we know what that's like on the horizontal level. We can be very active and busy around the house. But be quite out of love for our spouse. It happens, doesn't it? Even to those who are mature, even to those who have walked with Christ for a long time. Just a few days ago, I celebrated my 35th birthday as a believer in Christ. I remember the day very distinctly. God in His mercy called me to Himself. And by His grace, I have walked with Him for 35 years. And honestly, I, I know what it is to grow cold in my love for Christ. I know what it is to grow stale and if we're honest, all of us, it happens, doesn't it? But we don't need to be okay with it. The same offer that was given to the church at Ephesus is given to us. Repent. Repent. 
Bring that to God and know the forgiveness that only He can bring. Turn from those things and turn to Christ. Let me put this as simply as I can. Those things that fuel your love for Christ, do those. Those things that fuel your love for Christ, do those. And those things that dull your love for Christ, leave those. Trust me, you will not miss them. I know that's hard to imagine this side of it, but you will not miss them. And you will not regret following hard after Jesus. So growing in our faithfulness for Christ and growing in our affection for Christ. We are the bride being made ready. One other note about the bride. Did you see the phrase there in chapter 6? Or verse 6, sorry. It shows up right in the middle of the verse. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. And then we get the hallelujah and then the praise to God. But, but I want to zero in on that phrase, a great multitude. That phrase describes this gathered bride of Christ that if you're in Christ, you're a part of. And we know from Revelation chapters 5 and 7 that this multitude gathered before the throne of God is a multitude from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation. We are a corporate bride of Christ. Application, or at least some of the applications of that. I alone am not the bride. My race alone is not the bride. This denomination alone is not the bride. This church alone is not the bride. We are a part of a pan-national across the nations, pan-generational across the generations, bride of Christ. All of God's people from all nations and all times make up His bride. It's what we confess when we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church there. We're talking about all of God's people from all nations and all times that make up this bride of Christ. And here's some real practical application. I don't get to choose who is a part of the bride of Christ. It's His bride. He chooses. It's my job. He's called me. He's called you to love and serve and to care for that bride. Now that may seem so obvious that it's hardly worth mentioning, but if we're honest, we've got to admit this is a struggle for us. Because I like to and we like to love and serve those who are like us. We like to love and serve those who will like us back. We like to love and serve those that we like to love and serve. Or maybe we just find it easier not to love at all. It's pretty dangerous and costly business, isn't it? It's easier to hold grudges or to critique the work of others or to play it safe as we stay in our comfort zones. We prefer slogans over serving. 
Rather post something on Facebook than to actually get dirty serving somebody. And as a people of God, as the bride of Christ, these are not options for us. To love Christ is to love His bride. To be close to Christ is to be close to His bride. Again, think about that on the earthly level. If you came up to me and said, Joe, I want to be your friend, but not Terry's. Yeah, that's, that's just not going to work. We're, we're a package deal. We go together. Jesus and His bride are a package deal. They go together. Those who belong to Jesus are His bride. And we are called to treat them as such. And we're called to love and to care for them. Jesus is gathering a corporate bride and He Himself provides the wedding clothes. Look back at verse 8. End of verse 7. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready and it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It was granted, it was given, you see there at, verse, uh, at the end of verse 8, to clothe herself. God Himself gives His bride, gives us the wedding clothes that we need as His bride. These clothes are the righteousness of Christ given to us at the cross. The wedding clothes that He gives is the righteousness of Christ purchased for us at the cross. When we talk about the sacrifice that Christ made for us, what took place there at the cross was a double transaction, a double exchange. If I asked you, what did Christ do for you on the cross? Most of us would get part one of this, but I don't think we spent enough time thinking about part two. Part one, He took away our sin. Jesus took our place on the cross so that our debt could be paid. Our sins forgiven. That's part one. But part two of this double transfer, this double exchange, is His righteousness given to us. His perfection that He lived out on this earth. He kept the law for 33 years with no fault, no sin. No error. That record He gives to His people. So He purchased both on the cross. And so when God looks at us, what He sees is His Son. That righteousness given to us. I was at a wedding yesterday and I love and I'll never tire of that moment of the bride coming through the doors. And how glorious and beautiful she is as she walks down that aisle. That's what Jesus has purchased for us. His bride. He gave us those clothes. But then there's a confusing twist at the end of 8. Did you see it? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Wait a minute, Joe. You just told us that the clothing is the righteousness of Christ. But here it's the righteous deeds of the saints. Which is it? My answer to that is yes. 
It's both. It's the Ephesians 2.10 principle where Paul says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Ephesians 2.10 comes as no surprise, comes after Ephesians 2.1-9, which is all about Paul telling us you have been saved by grace through faith. You have been saved by grace through faith. He repeats it like three or four times in that passage. And the outworking of that grace through faith is this. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, if it's true and real and genuine faith, it brings forth righteous deeds that Revelation 19 is talking about. It brings forth these good works that Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about. To be His bride, we must be dressed in His wedding clothes. Are you? Are you trusting in His righteousness? Are you trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross to make you right with God? And not your works. There's not enough that you could do to make you right with God. Jesus has done it all. That's why He said on the cross, it is finished. Debt finally and fully paid. Is that your hope this morning? He's inviting you to come. Will you come and be a part of His holy bride dressed fully in His perfect righteousness? This is what is being held out to you this morning. One final thought, and it'll be a good conclusion for us. Did you see how the song that they broke out in, this great multitude, starts with the word, Alleluia? This word, Alleluia, shows up only four times in the New Testament, and all four times are right here in this chapter. It's a word that means you praise God. You praise God. It's an exhortation to praise, and that's fitting, isn't it? And did you see that it was John's instinctive response there in verse 10? As he heard all this, as he took it all in, he wanted to bow down and worship the angel, and the angel actually had to correct him. No, send that God's way. And shouldn't this be our response to all that we've taken in this morning? To give praise and honor and glory to God. Who is worthy of these things? Who is sufficient for these things? Not one of us. And yet God in His kindness and grace has done this. So people of God at Holy Cross Midtown, let's praise Him with our lips and with our lives all over this city and all over this county and to the ends of the earth. Oh, alleluia. People of God, brothers and sisters, bride of Christ, Let's you and I praise Him. And let's do that right now as we pray together. Pray with me. God, thank You for these glorious truths that You have shown us from Your Word. As we just said, not one of us is sufficient for these things. Not one of us is worthy. But there is one who is. 
And we thank You in His name and we trust only in His righteousness. Our Lord Jesus, our Bridegroom. And thank You, Jesus, that You are calling to Yourself a bride and that You would extend that call, that invitation to us. And Lord, as part of Your bride, by Your grace and by Your Spirit, would You make us ready as we seek to live a life worthy of our calling. As we seek to love one another in Your, in your body. God, would You do all these things for the glory of Your great name we pray. Amen.